Good morning. It's Wednesday, the twenty-first of February, and this is Govind Rajathi Raj broadcasting from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day: the Nifty Fifty closes at a record high. HDFC Bank floats up. Ships carrying millions of barrels of Russian crude to India are stranded on high seas. Two decades on, India resumes flirting with private nuclear power generation. The most shocking statistic about Indian car buyers and their preferences. And why HDFC Bank does not want to be a cowboy lender, and why branches are still important. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. Nifty closes at a record high. The stock markets opened lower on Tuesday as we had forecasted, but turned around in a fairly surprise volatile session after index movers stocks like HDFC Bank shot up around 2.6%, the biggest intraday gain for that stock in several months. This was the sixth winning session and the longest such run in two and a half months. The BSE Sensex ended at 73,057, up 349 points, while the Nifty 50 closed at a record closing high, as we said. At twenty-two thousand one ninety-seven or seventy-five points, the Nifty Fifty had touched these levels earlier, but had subsequently receded. Though it did hit another record high of twenty-two thousand two hundred sixteen in intraday trade on Tuesday. Russian crude bound for India is stranded. First, oil prices, which are still holding around eighty-three dollars a barrel, moving narrowly around this level right now, as the markets try and make sense of the demand and supply factors, including, of course, the tensions in the Middle East. Elsewhere, India is facing a problem of oil from Russia as its seaborne crude shipments fell for a second week, with the situation likely to get worse next week, according to Bloomberg. Nearly fifteen million barrels of Russia's so-called crude, meant for delivery to India, are sitting in tankers idling off the coasts of Malaysia and South Korea, and apparently they show little signs of moving. Twelve tankers are anchored, holding the key Russian crude grade, and most haven't moved for more than a month. Vessel tracking data compiled by Bloomberg is showing. Moscow has been struggling to get its so-called crude into India, which is the main market for this particular grade produced by the Sakhalin One project, which are essentially offshore fields bunched together. With India's refiners apparently unsure of falling foul of U.S. sanctions and complaining that also the grade is too expensive relative to alternatives, according to Bloomberg. Although two shipments were delivered recently to India after a break of more than two months, Russia's problems seem far from over. As at least thirteen more—that's about nine million barrels—are still sitting on vessels that appear to be going nowhere, as we said. Adding to Russia's concerns, all seven of the specialized shuttle tankers that haul the crude from the export terminal now have cargoes on board, leaving none available to take on fresh shipments. The lack of available ships will hamper exports of so-called crude for at least the next week and possibly longer, according to Bloomberg. India flirts with private nuclear power again. What goes comes back. Sometimes after a few decades, I asked the CEO of a private power company then, that is almost two decades ago, if they were going to bid for setting up nuclear power projects. Well, we have a team in place, and we are working on the scope and feasibility. It's up to the government, he told me, or at least roughly so. When I asked him why they were going ahead and setting up teams without the government clearly greenlighting the whole process, including amending the law, he said, "What choice did they have? 
we have to take a stab at all opportunities present or distant he said thus imparting a lesson which was more about doing business in india than nuclear power back to the present reuters is reporting that the government is going to invite private firms to invest about 26 billion dollars in its nuclear energy sector nuclear power contributes less than 2% to india's power generation capacity and has a long way to go and also the argument for nuclear has changed in the context of climate change because it is not as polluting and now is seen as a cleaner greener energy though the debate on its risks are obviously still on around 2006 or close to 20 years ago and the time i spoke to the power company ceo companies like tata power and ntpc were waiting for the government to amend the atomic energy act of 1962 yes that's the law that needs amending to allow the private sector and others to get into nuclear energy incidentally in most western countries nuclear power is run by private companies including in countries like france where nuclear power is almost 68% of total annual power generation as per the us energy information administration and these figures are as of 2021 in the same year this 2021 nuclear plants accounted for 21% of america's power generation all of this i can assure you is private now back here according to reuters the government is talking to at least five private firms including reliance tata power adani power and vedanta to invest about 5 billion dollars each The target is apparently 11000 megawatts of new nuclear power generation capacity by 2040. India's current capacity is about 7500 megawatts and has committed investments for another 1300 megawatts according to Reuters. So at least Reliance and Tata were there around two decades ago though the Reliance entity of then and today is a little different. The Reuters report says that private companies will invest in the nuclear plants, acquire land, water and undertake construction in areas outside the reactor complex of the plants, but the rights to build and run the stations and their fuel management will rest with the Nuclear Power Corporation, the government entity as allowed under the law, they said. Now, the private companies are apparently expected to earn revenue from the power plants, electricity sales and Nuclear Power Corporation would operate the projects for a fee, the sources said. Now, This obviously seems a workaround on the law being the Atomic Energy Act of 1962 which we just quoted it is not clear to me why the companies in question would agree to this unless incentivized considerably elsewhere now 12 years ago the effort faltered because the private sector did not get clarity or movement on the legal foundation to going nuclear at that time the fears may have been greater today the fears have receded hopefully the bureaucracy will recede as well Shocking news about India's auto consumers. Last month saw the highest car sales in India at about 393,000 cars dispatched in January according to the Society of Indian Automobile Manufacturers. Now there are some glitches downstream like dealers complaining that they're being dumped with more inventory that they can manage which means that car companies are producing a little more than they should be but demand is clearly strong. The Deloitte 2024 Global Automotive Consumer Study is out with a substantial India focus as well and some of the findings are quite surprising and revealing. The broader takeaway is that hybrids as the data is already showing are now preferred to electric. That reflects the choice consumers are making in going from internal combustion engines or petrol and diesel engines to hybrid before going on to battery. Electric vehicles are roughly 2% of the market while hybrids which means they have a battery and run on fuel and thus deliver greater mileage are around 12% according to Rajiv Singh partner and consumer industry leader at Deloitte Asia Pacific I caught up with Rajiv Singh and I asked him to talk about the report the key takeaways globally and from India and themes which were at the intersection 
we have been doing for the last now more than 12-15 years across multiple countries. We started doing this across say 12 geographies but as of now I think we cover more than 26-27 geographies across the world. And India has been one of those geographies that we have been covering for the last 12 plus years now. So a lot of data in terms of the changing consumer insights and so on. This survey that we do broadly focuses on four dimensions, Gobind. So one, it focuses on how the preference towards a powertrain has been changing over the last, say, a decade or so. And every year we keep capturing. So we have seen that trend now as to how it has shifted more towards EV, more towards hybrid and less and less towards ICE. The second factor that this report covers is around future intentions to buy. Which brand would a consumer like to buy? Why would the consumer like to buy a particular brand? Third is it also looks at vehicle connectivity and what features are the consumers preferring. And the fourth is to do with the upcoming trends, whether it is to do with leasing of vehicles, subscription, and so on and so forth. So what would you say for Indian consumers or Indian markets are the key trends which are new in a manner of speaking? I think one thing that catches my attention, Govind, is that, see, in India, we know that our dependency on oil is very, very high. And there is a lot of focus by the government, by various stakeholders, in terms of ensuring that we push the EV in the country. But one thing that always catches attention is that whenever we go back to the consumers and ask them, their intention to buy a hybrid is continuously going up in the country. Interestingly, even in the last year, which is 2023, and this was done somewhere in October, November 2023, we found that the intention to buy hybrid has gone up by 4 percentage points, from 20% to 24%. Whereas to buy an EV has gone up only from 10% to 12%, only by 2 percentage points. The good news is that for the first time in over a decade, we have seen the intent to buy an ICE vehicle going below 50%. So the intent to buy an ICE vehicle is now below 50% at 49 but the intention to buy a hybrid is definitely more than to buy an electric vehicle. And this is despite hybrids not enjoying the same benefits when it comes to incentives or taxation and so on and so forth. And a quick question on taxation. So electric, as I understand it, and please correct me, is about under 10% duties, that is domestic duties. Hybrids are about 50%? Yeah, it would be 28% plus the CES. So it would make it at 52 53%. And EV would come at about 5%. But there is a FAME subsidy as well. Now, of course, that subsidy is going away. But the state governments also provide subsidy for electric vehicles, right? So the state governments, there are different states which are having their own incentive scheme. So electric vehicles get also the advantage of these subsidies that, that the consumers get. But consumers, I'm assuming, are not able to make out that there is a subsidy built into the cost that they're paying for it. Because they're, I guess, assessing purely on the basis of value that they perceive. Yeah, I think, see, interestingly, when we go back and ask our consumers as well, Gobind, the consumers in India, at least, are not willing to pay a much of premium when it comes to EV vehicle. Uh, no doubt, when you ask them, why do they want to shift, they talk about environmental concerns and everything. But at the end of the day, it boils down to what is the cost of ownership. And the consumers in India are hardly willing to pay a 10% or a 15% premium over an equivalent ICE engine. So they have a big concern in terms of what is the residual value when it comes to EV. And that's the reason why we are finding that the Indian consumers are not willing to give or pay a higher premium. So that's the reason when there are subsidies and other things that are built in into the vehicle. I think the consumers only look from a perspective of what is the cost of ownership and what is the, the value that they derive from the vehicle at the end of the day. 
So you're saying that for EVs, it's the perception of residual value or maybe the realization of residual value, which is more important, let's say, than range anxiety and so on, which is usually deterring potential customers of EVs elsewhere in the world. And I'm sure in India as well. No, you're right. So the number one concern definitely is from a perspective of range anxiety. And the number two is from a perspective of charging infrastructure. But I think that there are many places where we do talk about, I think, these two parameters, which is range anxiety and charging infrastructure. But one thing that we don't talk enough about is residual value, which definitely comes in the top three or top four from a consumer ranking perspective. So that's the reason why I cited it, because it's not so often talked about. But when you go and talk to the consumers, they do talk about what is the residual value of the car going to be at the end of four or five years. I think the Indian consumers are used to getting a decent amount of residual value for their ICE vehicles. They tend to get about 40%, 50% for a good condition ICE vehicle at the end of three years, at the end of four years. But their concern is that for an EV vehicle at the end of four years, what is the likely residual value that I'm likely to get? So it's not a much spoken about subject. But I think after range anxiety and charging infrastructure, it would definitely be there. Number three, number four. Right. And the other interesting point that your study seems to have brought out and bases your understanding in the past as well is loyalty for brands in India. Can you walk us through that? I know this is a very sensitive topic, you know. So we were looking at 28 countries or 27 countries across the globe. Interestingly, the loyalty in India is one of the lowest so when we spoke to our consumers in India, 78% of them said that they don't want to continue with the same brand that they had bought in the past. Now, look at another extreme, a country like Japan. In a country like Japan, it is exactly the reverse. 70% of the people actually want to stick to the brand that they bought. So if they bought a Toyota or if they bought a Honda or if they bought a Nissan, they want to stick to that same brand as their next choice as well. Maybe that they may shift from a Toyota to a Lexus, but they would want to stay within the same umbrella. So it's a big challenge, I would say, for the OEMs, because when the Indian consumers do want to keep changing from one brand to another brand as they keep kind of upgrading themselves, how do the OEMs ensure that they build this loyalty with respect to their brand? Because a lot of OEMs do come out with buyback policies. They come out with uh, various kinds of loyalty schemes, reference schemes, and so on and so forth. But I think it's a long distance, I think, for consumers in India and for the OEMs in India to build that loyalty. And what does this reflect at a very fundamental level? I think there are three things that we could capture. One is that the Indian consumers, of course, want to try out more and more brands. We should keep in mind that India is also a market where we are seeing a lot of new players coming in every few years, right? So as we speak, for example, we have a WinFast, which is talking about getting into India. We have a Tesla, which is talking about getting into India. We have Fisker as another player which is looking at India and so on and so forth. So I think the Indian consumers are also exposed to so many new brands as we are evolving as a market. I think that purely the consumers want to one, try out multiple brands. And the second thing is that grass is always green on the other side. So whenever you talk to the consumers, they will always say, no, I think the other brand offers me more technology. It offers me more features and so on and so forth. So the Indian consumers are no doubt also very, very I would say they love features. So they may or may not use those features in their vehicle, but they definitely want to have a lot of features in their car. So maybe that the sunroof will be utilized only once in six months. But you look at the number of cars which are sold with the sunroof, right? So and in a hot country like India, we're not talking of a European country. So sometimes logic doesn't work. It's purely a matter of preference. How are you looking at 2024? And how is all of this playing out or likely to play out 
given that i mean automobile sales are doing very well january was a record month for auto sales for india and second is you mentioned connected cars i mean is that something that's fitting in or is that part of the aspirational journey for indian consumers as well no no i think i'll start with the second one gobind i think it's not aspirational people do want now more and more connected features on their car and when we spoke to the consumers i think the number one priority in their mind when it comes to connected is safety so consumers in india do look at a lot of safety features which come in their car which is either to do with geo fencing tracking their car or a lane sensing and so on and so forth so we may not be completely ready from an infrastructure perspective but consumers definitely think that things like which help in safety of passengers safety of people outside those kind of features adas level 2 for example i think those kind of features people do value a lot when it comes to connected vehicles coming to the point one that you were talking about the future see i think it's very difficult to say how say immediately in short term say one year things will span out but definitely i think if you look at ev ev has almost doubled every year for the last 3 or 4 years or 5 years now it grew by almost 100% even last year in fi23 i think as the base of ev is going up i don't expect that we will be able to sustain the same rate of growth ev is currently say at about 2% maybe it may grow at about 50 60% in fi24 but from a long term perspective which is say not very long term but still 6 to 8 years say 2030 I think EV could be about 20-22% share of the total vehicles sold in the country. So we definitely think that despite all the things that we are talking about, the share of EV in the country will keep growing. And I think hybrids will continue. Hybrids today are about 12%. So let's not forget that why EV is only 2%, hybrids are 12% of the market share today. But I do expect that the hybrids will peak somewhere to about 20-22%. after that if there is no support maybe hybrids will start going down because it's a good bridge as you move from ice to ev but we do think that ev will get to that number of closer to 20% by 2030 right rajiv thank you so much for joining me thank you thanks govind so here's the interesting part to sum up first indians are shying away from electric but not because of range anxiety which is a problem elsewhere in the world or rather a larger problem elsewhere in the world because they are fundamentally unsure about resale value which means they feel that the price will drop quite sharply once they have bought the cars or after 3 or 4 years the second and most important factor and a big surprise to me was loyalty some 78% of indian customers apparently do not want to continue with the car they own today and loyalty is apparently in india that is amongst the lowest in the world contrast that to japan where 70% apparently stick to the same model all this of course flows from studies across some 28 countries that Deloitte has looked at. HDFC's Masterclass in Finance and Risk HDFC Bank stock has been pummeled in recent months, especially after it emerged that they were having a problem finding low-cost deposits or sufficient deposits to fund their growth. The stock has fallen about 17% this year alone, though the benchmark Sensex has gone up in the same period, albeit marginally. Now, the path here on as we speak right now looks a little different because most or many rather major brokerages almost like brothers in arms have given in buy calls now there are two interesting questions that bank ceo shashidhar jagdishan addressed which are important in a conversation he had with a goldman sachs analyst day before and posted on the hdfc bank's youtube channel the first is will award these are my words hdfc bank be more aggressive in the way it targets business put simply You can obviously lend to more riskier customers big and small and earn more but then it could also blow up in your face 
And what does HDFC think about that? Hear this. Leave aside whatever we have inherited. Sure. Okay. The fact of the matter is that minus of the foreign body that has come in, which is the book mm-hmm. from HDFC Limited, there was a certain band at which we were operating in. I think somewhere between 4 and 4.4 mm-hmm. for a long period of time. If you look at it, minus of that, we continue to maintain similar kind of a thought process. Why? Because we know uh, in periods of tight liquidity, in periods where the funding is scarce, the rates will move up. So we have the right balance of what we need to do in terms of risk-based pricing. And this is not something new. We've been doing it for a long period of time. And uh, I'm sure Shrini would have done it in his earnings call as to how many we let go as well. Uh, For the risk appetite that we are comfortable, I think the pricing is more or less right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yes, it's going to be tight. We are constantly, the only element, assuming my expected, the risk appetite continues to be the same or the expected credit loss is the same, the only thing that is changing the risk-based pricing model is the cost of funds. Mm-hmm. So to that extent, you will see constantly our asset liability committee uh, management constantly raising the threshold level so that sure. we don't sort of um, uh, you know go down the margin ladder. Uh, incrementally, I think we are reasonably sanguine that um, we should manage that. Um, as I said, we're not in the quantity game at all. We're not, we don't want to grow just for the sake of share, market share. Very clear, this is not a new philosophy. This is a philosophy that we have uh, um, uh, been building a franchise over the last 30 years. And we're proud of that. And, um, you know, we have also mentioned, and you have seen it in the past, that any exuberance in pricing, any exuberance in uh, I would call it the hardball-based pricing strategies is all short-term in nature. Um, I think we are a long play, and therefore we are happy to wait uh, till these corrections can happen. But we are not going to be compromising both on margins and risks. So there is a certain trajectory that we, are, we will operate, a band that we will operate, whether it's a margin band, whether it's a ROA band, and that is something that we are very particular. If there is some kind of a, a disruption there, Happy to go slow. The second question is interesting and should be a masterclass for anyone over enamored by all things digital. The question again and my framing of it, why does a bank need branches in this day and age? What do they do? Do they really deliver? And is it worth it having physical people sit in a street corner office dealing with all kinds of walk-ins and perhaps even dust? And if so, how do you know it's working? I would urge you to listen closely because the insights don't just apply to banks, but to all general retail-facing businesses and brands as well, at least many of them. As the CEO, as the helm of the institution, I have a certain vision. Okay. Uh, And again, in all humility, I must say that going forward, I'll caveat my vision to say that it's a vision and not a guidance. Uh, I don't think I need to blame anybody in my team to have given a wrong narrative on that particular front. Yes, What I wanted to convey is distribution is extremely important for a very granular and sustainable funding into the future. And I maintain that. But whatever we are investing is not for now. It is for the future. 
you look at the trajectory, and I'm sure our team has put it up in the domain, that there is a life cycle of a branch. Yeah. In the first five years, this is basis our actual experience. In the first five years, if there are 100 units which get mobilized as deposits, um, in the five to 10, it's about three times that, 300 units. In greater than 10 to 15, it's about 10 times that. Yeah. And beyond 15, it's 25 times that. So that's a dramatic progression of how the productivity or the deposit per branch, if that's the metric that one were to look at, um, has a trajectory. Now, obviously, when you look at the actual experience, it's very clear that it starts to move the needle eight to 10 years from now. I can be, frankly, if I was a very uh, more worried about now on the shorter end, then we would not have, we said, forget it. Let my future um, success had talk, it, you know, uh, worry about it. Why should I worry about it? But that's too parochial. That's not strategic. Yeah. So I still maintain that branch distribution is going to be an extremely important part of a strategy. Otherwise, you will miss out opportunities into the future. So that's part one. Part two is, uh, along with branches, you will get you will need people mm -hmm. because even in a very digital world, the branch distribution is going to be uh, more an engagement center. Your acquisitions will be digital. Uh, your transactions will be entirely digital. So why would I need a distribution? That's because there I need people to be engaged uh, to engage with customers. Finally, the only differentiation that will remain in future is, um, is how well are we able to engage and get that emotional quotient in. Primary banking is going to be basis that kind of an emotional quotient that you establish with customers. It's not a digital platform, sadly, is very good from an efficiency perspective, and I'll talk about that, is extremely important even as a part of our strategy. But it's it's a cold, it's going to be extremely yeah. cold and impersonal. And banking is not like buying anything on a platform. Sure. Yes, you can buy, but ultimately if you need, you know, what is the key element in a bank's valuation is its annuity of flows. And that will happen only if I engage and that personal and a Human touch is extremely important. So branches are going to be extremely important. People are going to be extremely important. But the fact that we're going to have a rather seamless experience, and that's what we are investing rather heavily, I think you should see the operating leverage kicking in. Mm -hmm. um, so, and you will start to see that. I mean, from, you know, we've opened a lot of branches over the last three years. Um, uh, Shreni probably in his uh, in his one on ones will give you that most of the branches are all on track uh, in terms of breaking even, which means that when they all break even, you suddenly will see the jaws opening for the new set of branches as well. So it takes time. We need a little bit of patience, but you will start. You'll see it. Sure. We have demonstrated from over the last ten years from a forty nine percent cost to earnings to a forty forty one percent. And you will see this happening even now. I'm not going to give any guidance where you're going to be, but just following a similar trajectory, you will see the operating leverage kicking in. That's it from me for today. See you tomorrow. 
That was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant including of course India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback@thecore.in at and thank you once again for listening.